is I said, okay, I've got an upgrade here. So I went down to the Verizon store, I got the, uh, the new iPhone 6, and as part of that, they have to transition your numbers from your old phone, and so you have to hand them your old phone. I'm thinking, boy, this is going to be bad. So I give, the guy, he's going, I give him the old flip phone, and, and he kind of looks at it like, yeah, you were using this, and, and he transfers the numbers over. One of the things um, that, about the iPhone is it's something called a podcast on an iPhone. And if, I love this application because I'm in a van pool, and I can listen to podcasts by great teachers. You know, a lot of uh, uh, different teachers that have podcasts, they come out each day, and you can use the time wisely. You know, Greg Laurie's got one, uh, just all different kinds of people. And so... The thing about the iPhone, though, is you can load up your iPhone, depending on how much memory you've got, you can load it up with podcasts. And you've got a great basis of theory right there. All this great, great teaching from guys that teach from the Word, really uh, awesome stuff. But until you, the, the iPhone itself can't do anything with that podcast other than just retain the information. It can't go out and apply those podcasts. And I think a lot of ways, as Christians, we're like that. We can hear a lot of God's word. And think how many messages you've heard over your lifetime, right? Do the multiplication. A lot of messages. And then where are you in application? And that's what I was challenged by when I was looking at this passage in Matthew chapter 10. Um, is we don't want to become walking iPhones. We want to become people who are living out God's word. And just to set the stage, since we're jumping in the middle, this is about two years into Jesus' public ministry. We're going to be going through chapter 10 in Matthew. So the disciples have been with Jesus for about a year to a year and a half. And during this time, um, they've seen him perform miracles, healings, cast out demons, teach, and they've been with him day and night. But something very unique is going to happen in this chapter. Jesus is going to ask them to go out, and we're going to take a look at that. Um, this passage is also found, by the way, uh, it's also in Mark and Luke, but the reason we're looking at Matthew is Matthew has the longest recording of Jesus' discourse on his instructions to the disciples before he sends them out. So we want to take a look at this morning. Um, think of the multitudes. There are two groups of people. You have the disciples and you have the multitudes. When you look at the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of people came to hear Jesus. It said, you know, thousands of people, they'd come out to listen to him, but they weren't disciples. They weren't followers of Jesus. They wanted to be there to see the miracles. They wanted to hear the teaching. They agreed with it. It was great when he was passing out the bread and fish, but when it came to really following Jesus, uh, not all of them took that, that course. And so what's the difference between a disciple and a hearer, just one who's merely a hearer of the word? Uh, if you join me in uh, Matthew chapter, chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. And having summoned his 12 disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve he sent out after instructing them. So think about this a second. Um, Jesus is going to send these guys out. And just think a little bit, you know, does this sound like such a good idea? These guys have only been with him for a year and a half. And think of the personalities of the disciples. You've got Peter, who basically will say the first thing that comes to mind. And good or bad, he'll just kind of blurt it out. He's impetuous, right? Just kind of does things. We also know he likes to carry a sword. He's not too good with the sword. Not real accurate, but he'll, he's the guy who will just do it. It's, uh, whatever comes to mind. James and John. Uh, you know, it's funny. When we look at paintings of the disciples, they're always painted as kind of these soft... Um, most effeminate kind of characters, you know. And in Luke 9, there's, a, there's an account of James and John. They go to a Samaritan village with Jesus. 
And the Samaritans don't receive the message. They basically turn Jesus and the disciples away. And James and John's reaction is, hey, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and blow this place up? That's their reaction. So you've got two guys that are ready to firebomb a Samaritan village. You've got Peter who says anything. Uh, and then you've got guys like Simon the Zealot. He's an interesting character. The Zealots um, were a group who extremely, uh, they hated the Romans, anything Roman, because the Romans were an occupying force in Israel. These were Jewish nationalists who uh, would take up arms if necessary to get rid of the Romans. They would to any means necessary. So he's one of Jesus' disciples. Remember Nathaniel or Bartholomew, he's the one who, uh, who says to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So Philip's got kind of this, or I'm sorry, uh, Nathaniel's got this little bit of a jaded, skeptical attitude. You know, this is another one of the disciples. And their favorite things to do is argue about who's the greatest among them. They've had this argument numerous times, right? They're, they're, Jesus has to stop the argument. Um, they're always kind of clamoring for position with Jesus. And these are the guys Jesus is going to send out. And he's going to send them out in pairs. When we look at the other Gospels, it tells us they went out in twos. Um, so just think about this. Probably not something we would do, but something Jesus did. And as we go through this passage this morning, I want to look at not just uh, discipleship, but I have eight things that would kill discipleship, eight discipleship killers. We're going to have some slides coming up on that in a second. Uh, the first one, here we go, is feelings of inadequacy. So you can imagine... Uh, if you were to ask the disciples, as, as Jesus gave them, telling them they're about to go out, do you guys feel ready? I can guarantee you to a man that they would say, no, we are not ready to do this. And sometimes I think we can, um, we can feel the same way in our faith. We can say, no, Lord, I'm not ready. I haven't been a Christian long enough. Some, so-and-so is more gifted than I am. You know, just don't, I want to kind of listen a little more, check it out before I really follow you. Um, Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 3, 4 to 6, And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate in servants of a new covenant. So God's word is very clear. We're, we're not adequate. There's nothing adequate about us. Our adequacy comes strictly from the Lord and what he does in our lives. Uh, you can think in Scripture, too, uh, it's illustrate this point. If you remember in Numbers 22, God uses Balaam's donkey to speak to Balaam. God could have used anything, and uh, sometimes we think that, you know, uh, we've got to have a certain measure of, of polish or whatever before the Lord can use us. But if the Lord can use a donkey to speak, he can certainly use us. Um, also, think about this. Uh, Judas Iscariot was one of the 12 that Jesus is sending out. Judas wasn't even a believer. Uh, we learn later in Scripture that after he betrays the Lord, he takes his own life. It's called the son of perdition in Scripture. Uh, so if the Lord can use Judas, who wasn't even a believer, to accomplish his purpose. He can certainly use us. So the first thing is feelings of inadequacy. And we have to remember that we are inadequate in ourselves. If we look at verses, let's see, 5 and 6. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So why would Jesus um, not want them to go to the Samaritans. Uh, if you read Acts 1 and 8, it says that, you know, when the gospel is preached, it was good to Samaria as well as Jerusalem. Uh, there's two reasons that they're not going to be going to the uh, Samaritans in this case. The first is um, it's a fulfillment of prophecy. When you look at the Old Testament, it tells us clearly that the Messiah would come to Israel first. And after Israel had rejected the Messiah, he would go to the Gentiles. In Psalm 118, 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. 
in Isaiah 49, 6, I will make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So God had promised in his word the gospel would come to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. So Jesus is fulfilling prophecy by sending them to the Jewish uh, uh, cities first before the Samaritans. But also look at uh, chapter, verse 36 of chapter 9 in Matthew. So seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. And uh, Jesus looked at that, looked around, he saw people who were lost, and he hurt for them. He desired them to know who he was. And so that's the reason he sends out the disciples to the Jewish uh, cities first. Verses 7 and 8. As you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you receive, freely give. Um, now imagine this. Jesus gives them the power to heal any disease, uh, cast out any demon uh, that they come up against. And so I'm, I'm thinking, if I'm a disciple and I've got that power, where's the first place I'm going? I'm probably going down to Dominican Hospital. They didn't have hospitals back then. I would just go floor by floor and just empty the place to say, okay, you're healed in the name of Jesus. You know, it's kind of, it would be wonderful to be able to do that. Uh, but really the, the point of them doing that was not so much to heal, but was to preach the message. Look at verse 7. Preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The, the miracles were only given as a way to validate the message, which was salvation through the Messiah. It says, as you receive, freely you receive, freely give. Think about um, everything the Lord's given you since coming to him in Christ. We, we experience forgiveness. We experience um, hope, a future that we never had before. We experience fellowship with other Christians. And the Lord says, as you uh, experience these things, freely give them to other people. And so that's part of the, the message too, is we're, as disciples, we freely give. Verse 9. He gives them some, some specific instructions as we go out. The first one says, Do not acquire gold or silver or copper, for your, or money belts. They weren't to carry any kind of wallet with them. Now, this is kind of weird. You're going to send these guys out in pairs, get them out to villages, and you tell them, don't take any wallet or money with you. And, you know, why would, why would Jesus do that? He didn't want them to focus on money or material things. Um, you can think about this. Uh, if you go down, like, Pacific Ave, and you see street performers out there, and everyone's got a little tip jar out there, right? These guys are singing and playing. They've got a tip jar. And the idea is you throw, if you like what they're doing, you throw money in the tip jar. Jesus didn't want them to have a tip jar. He didn't want them to be, you know, doing this strictly, you know, to collect money. They weren't to collect money at all, as a matter of fact. So when they had no money belt, when they were healing people, people couldn't say, well, let me throw a 20 in there. I can't, you know, it's nothing to do it. It was to keep the focus on the message. Uh, I think sometimes one of the discipleship killers in our lives can be a focus on material or, or, or money. Jesus talked about it. He says, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve two at the same time in Matthew 6, 24. But... He asks, is money the problem? Well, no, money's not the problem. Because what does the Bible say about money? Money's, money's not the problem. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, reading about, uh, you think about some of the Old Testament characters. Think about Abraham. Think about uh, Jake or Job. Both very wealthy men in the Lord. They, uh, they were extremely wealthy and blessed by the Lord. And they were used by the Lord. So reading about a guy named R.J. Letourneau. And he's the founder of Letourneau University, which is a Christian university in Texas. And reading about his life a little bit. Uh, he's known as the Dean of Earth Moving Equipment. So all the heavy equipment you see today, where you see, uh, you see tractors, you see backhoes, he was one of the guys that was, came up with a lot of those concepts. Um, 
During World War II, his, his company produced 70% of the earth-moving equipment that was used in World War II. Uh, he started out poor. He started out basically just dropped out of school at 14, uh, went to work as a mechanic, and became a contractor, earth-moving contractor, just doing it by hand, basically. Started to come up with the ideas to build these machines that would move earth for him more efficiently. Uh, at, at one point, his business was deeply in debt. Uh, the bank was threatening to close on his business. And they sent a guy out to, to Laterno who was watching what he was doing. And they said, you need to work seven days a week. Because, you know, what you're doing now is just not getting it done. And he said to him, he goes, no, I can't work seven days a week. I go to church on Sunday. And he convinced them to not let him work or have Sunday off. And he was able to pay the debt back. Uh, shortly afterwards, basically, he, um, he started thinking. He said, you know, if I start building earth-moving equipment rather than just working as a contractor, I can probably do better. And as soon as he did that, the Lord blessed his business. He started selling all kinds of uh, equipment coming with patents. He has over 300 patents to his name. And the Lord, his business just took off. He became very wealthy. And this was in the Depression during the 30s in the U.S. Uh, at that point, I think what's really interesting, his wife and him sat down and they said, let's do this. Let's give 90% of what we make to the Lord. Let's keep 10% for ourselves. So they basically, it was reverse tithing. We think of 10% to the Lord. He said, I'm going to give 90% to the Lord. And the Lord just blessed him. So the Lord can uh, bless wealthy people, but we have to be careful that money doesn't get a hold of us. Uh, verses 10 and 11. And whatever city you're... I'm sorry. Verses 9. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your belt or bags for your money or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. Uh, this is interesting. Uh, We've got to trust the Lord to provide our needs, right? He's going to provide them. We, if we try to provide for our own needs as we go out and we're dependent on ourselves, uh, it's going to be hard. We're going to, you know, we're going to come up short. So the Lord says, hey, trust me to provide your needs. Uh, and I think about, like, going on a backpacking trip. If I'm going to get, you know, go on a back, backpacking trip, I want to make provisions. I want to know how many days I'm going out. I want to know uh, where I'm going. I want to have supplies. I want to have food. I want to have the right clothing. And Jesus says to them, hey, don't, take, don't worry about any of that stuff. I'm good. The Lord's going to provide it. And I like that because um, number three is lack of trust in the Lord to provide for our needs. It's another thing that can kill discipleship when we have to trust. We try to provide for our own needs. And we don't trust the Lord to do it. And he warns us against this. Uh, think of the children of Israel in the wilderness. When they were out there for 40 years, who provided for them? The Lord, right? Percent man in the morning. He sent rain at night, or sent uh, rain from the rock. Moses taps the rock, rain comes out of it. Their clothes didn't wear out. Remember that? They didn't have to take extra clothes. Their sandals didn't wear out. And so the Lord provides everything they needed. Uh, I was reading an account of the Mayflower, the pilgrims that came over. Uh, you guys remember your history. In 1620, the Mayflower, uh, pilgrims came over on the Mayflower. And they were mostly devout Christians that came over, and they were seeking religious freedom. And about halfway through the voyage, the ship had some problems. Uh, it had been battered by the wind. It had uh, uh, been, the waves and the wind had done some damage to the structural integrity of the ship. And they had to make a decision. They said, you know, do we turn the ship around now and go back to England, or do we keep on going? And they prayed about it, and they said, you know, we believe the Lord's called us to go forward. He's going to provide for us. So it was really kind of neat. They took, uh, they had a big iron jack screw, which was kind of the... Uh, the 17th century equivalent of duct tape and bailing wire. And they took this jack screw 
and they used it to prop up underneath the boat between the deck and this, the main beam of the boat to support it. And the Lord blessed them. They got, to, as we know, two months later they arrived in America and we celebrate Thanksgiving. But it was their trust in the Lord to provide that got them through. Uh, verses 12 to 15, let's take a look at that. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. For it is not, if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house of the city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Uh, next discipleship kill we have is uh, fear of people rejecting us. It says, verse 14, whoever does not receive you. Uh, I'm sure each of us have been in a position where when we, um, we're afraid of not being received by people as we share our faith. As we go forth and we share the gospel or we share what the Lord's doing in our life, and with, especially with someone that doesn't know the Lord, we're afraid they won't receive us. I can remember um, about 25 years ago, I had a good friend of mine who was a tennis partner of mine. We'd play each week. This guy didn't know the Lord. And after about two years, I said, you know what? I've got to invite this guy to church. And so I got done playing one night, and I said, hey, Russ, would you want to check out where I go to church on Sunday? He knew I was going to church. And uh, I said, you want to ever, you know, come with me, check it out. You're welcome to come. And he reacted really, uh, didn't like that message at all. He said, you know what? He said, if that works for you, I'm glad. He goes, I don't want any part of it. And I don't know what in his experience had caused that kind of reaction, but uh, he did. And basically after that point, we were done. He just didn't want to uh, hang around anymore. And so that was, you know, not being received. And that's, you know, as being a disciple, one of the things... Um, we have to be prepared for us. People can reject us for our faith. That's okay. The Lord said that's going to happen. In fact, he prophesied, uh, or he spoke to the disciples saying, you know, when you go to these cities and they don't receive you, okay. That's right. Go to the next city. Shake the dust off from your feet. Keep on going. Uh, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Now, this is a real interesting verse because I've heard people apply this in so many different ways. Um, what the Lord's saying here is we're to use godly wisdom. We're to know what's going on around us in the world and we're to use godly wisdom and, and, uh, as we react to that. He says we're to be shrewd as serpents but also innocent as doves. Um, I can remember uh, a few years back uh, meeting the guy, one guy who claimed to be a Christian. And this guy was really interesting because he had no visible means of support. And he, he had a wife, he had two kids, and he didn't have a job. And I was thinking, well, I asked, Jackie knew him too from her work, and I said, you know, how are you, how does he support himself? And what he was basically doing was going around and part of his income was filing, I would call it frivolous lawsuits against people. Uh, and this was a guy in Santa Cruz County. Uh, he would go and he would find... Um, he had, and against utility companies as well, he would file these frivolous lawsuits and get people to kind of settle out of court. Um, also, he was doing some pretty underhanded stuff in terms of real estate. He had uh, bought up a bunch of properties that were damaged in the 1989 earthquake, bought them for, you know, pennies on the dollar. He was trying to turn around and sell those and avoid the red tags, and the county was after him because of the safety violations and things like that. And uh, I think of this guy, he was very shrewd. He was an extremely smart, really smart guy. Extremely shrewd, but not quite as innocent as doves. 
Uh, and so it was a really bad testimony. If, if, when this guy, when you found out he was a Christian, like, really? Um, you know, and I look at uh, what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16. He says, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. So that's the key. As we uh, move as disciples of Christ, people should see our good works and they should glorify the Lord, not us. And it should be something that brings honor to his name. Verses 17 to 20. Uh, persecution. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. And you shall be even brought before governors and kings for my name's sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour that you are to speak. For it is not you who are to speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Uh, Persecution. This is another discipleship killer, fear of persecution. Fortunately, we live in a country right now where we can openly meet, we can pray, we can teach God's word, we can share our faith. People might say things about us, but the government's not stopping us from doing that. We don't know how much longer we're going to enjoy that privilege. Um, read a guy uh, about a guy named Richard Wormbrand. If you guys have ever heard of him, he was a Romanian pastor uh, who, right after World War II, uh, when the Soviets took over most of Eastern Europe, um, they basically wanted to shut down all the churches because they believed that uh, Christianity was completely at odds with communism, and it is. And so they, they basically wanted to shut down the churches. So Richard Wormbrandt was warned not to preach. They told him, you know what, we don't want to hear it. We're taking over now. Just, uh, you know, don't, don't say anything about Christ. And he said, I can't do that. So he was on his way to teach at one of the churches that he was leading. He was arrested by the Soviets. Uh, they threw him in prison. They put him for uh, three years in solitary confinement. And he was there for a total of 14 years. And he wrote a book called Tortured for Christ. came out in the 60s. I don't know if anyone's ever read that book. He also wrote about 18 other books. Um, and he describes his experience in the prison camp, what it was like to be, uh, uh, to be there during that time. But he also had a sense of humor. Because this one quote I have to read to you guys, it's great. This is from one of his books. He's talking about his time in, in one of the prison camps. He says, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. A number of, the, number of us decided to pay the price for the privilege of preaching, so we accepted there the communist terms. It was a deal. We preached, and they beat us. We were happy preaching. They were happy beating us. Everyone was happy. And that's his crowd. <laughs> I love that quote. It's, it's the way he looked at persecution. Uh, it, it's just part of uh, what, you know, what the Lord used in his life to further the gospel. Uh, Jesus talks in verse 21 to 23. He prophesies about a future time of persecution that's coming in the tribulation period. And verse 21, And brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all on account of my name but is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the city of Israel until the Son of Man comes. So Jesus is talking about a time that's coming in the seven years of tribulation that's described in the, uh, the book of Revelation when the persecution that Christians experience now will be nothing compared to what it's going to be then. This is... Uh, going to be a future event. And you'll see in the Gospels, Jesus talks about that period of time at different points throughout the Gospel. Verses 26 to 33. Or I'm sorry, uh, 24 to 25. 
A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they had called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Um, you guys remember the account, right? In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus has performed a healing on a guy who's demon-possessed. He's also blind and dumb. And the crowd is astonished at what they, what they see this healing. And they say, wow, you know, could this be the son of David, the Messiah? And the Pharisees are right there, and they hear, and they say, nope, he casts out demons by, by Satan's power. And uh, Jesus turns around, and he says to him, you know, house divided is against itself cannot stand. And so what, uh, you know, people will say crazy things. Uh, part of uh, when we're a disciple of Christ, uh, people will say all kinds of outlandish things against us sometimes. That's just part of the territory that comes with They said to Jesus, Jesus said, you know, uh, disciples not above his master. If they said it about me, they're going to say it about you. Verses 26 to 33. Do not fear them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Verse 29, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. Therefore, do not fear, for you are more value than the sparrows. Everyone who shall confess me before men, I will confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Um, the thing I think we often fail to understand is how much God loves us and cares for us. Um, it says in this verse that the very hairs of our head are numbered. The Lord knows absolutely everything that's going on with our life. Sometimes I think we've, when we feel, uh, when we're in the middle of being persecuted or suffering a hard time or a trial, that the Lord's forgotten about us, uh, but he hasn't. Jesus assures us that uh, we're worth much more than the sparrows. Um, and I think that's, that, you know, that gives me comfort just to realize that uh, even though the, uh, oftentimes the emotions aren't there, you know, I just don't feel uh, God's love. I know it's based on his word. I know that he knows everything that's going on in my life, and he's going to get me through it. Verse 34 to 37. This is discipleship killer number six. This is family pressure. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And if a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household, I'm sorry, a man's enemies will be the enemies of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Uh, Jesus said that the gospel is going to bring division in families. Uh, some of you have come from families where that you've experienced that, where uh, your faith has uh, put you at odds with other family members. Um, Jesus ex also experienced that because in Mark chapter 3, the account's given. He's, uh, he's uh, going about the work of the ministry. In Mark chapter 3.21, it says, and when his own people or his own family heard of this, they went to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. This is Jesus' own family. They're saying to him, you know, they're seeing him do all these miracles, teaching, he's, he's going around the clock. They're afraid that he's going to burn himself out because he's not taking time to even eat. And so they say he's lost his senses. Uh, it's interesting to me that uh, two of uh, Jesus' brothers become gospel writers. The book of James, 
and the book of Jude are both written by Jesus' uh, brothers. So even though they thought he was crazy back then, they ultimately, uh, after the resurrection, they come to faith in Christ and their life turns around, they change. Uh, I used to know a guy uh, when I was in L.A. about 25 years ago. He had grown up in uh, Pakistan as a Muslim. And uh, he had a twin brother, and his uh, parents were, were back there. Parents split up, uh, so him and his brother uh, with a mom went to live in Canada and then in England. Uh, during that time, he became a follower of Christ. Uh, he, the gospel was shared with him. He became a Christian. He was going to, at the time I knew him, he was going to uh, Biola University down in L.A., and, which is a Christian university, and was real active in, in, uh, in serving the Lord. And so one time I asked him, I said, do you ever want to go back to Pakistan to visit your family? You know, do you ever? He goes, yeah. He goes, I, I, I would love to do that. And he goes, I have done that. But he goes, when I do it, he goes, I've got to do it in secrecy. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He goes, well, he goes, my twin brother, an identical twin brother, he goes, he is a devout Muslim. And he would consider it an honor to kill me for his faith. And um, his dad, uh, also the same way, felt that because he had converted to Christianity, they would be doing uh, Islam a favor by killing him. So he said when he went back to the country, and he did go back, he would have to kind of sneak in, go, you know, visit people at night. He'd have to avoid certain people, go to other people. It would be kind of this clandestine trip back to Pakistan. But that was something that was a reality for him. It definitely caused, uh, he knew what this, this verse was talking about. Verses 38 and 39. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my, shape, my sake shall find it. Uh, this is probably one of the greatest paradoxes in Scripture. Um, talks about finding our life, losing our life. If we lose it, we find it. You know, and there are several other paradoxes in Scripture that we come across. You know, uh, uh, I think of you know God's choosing us, but also our free will to accept Him. Uh, the you know the Trinity, uh, three that are that are separate but also one. Things we can't fully understand. Um, but Jesus says, uh, I love this verse. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake shall find it. Um, Paul in Ephesians 3, 7 says, but whatsoever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And think about where Paul was. At, at that point in his life, um, uh, he had accomplished pretty much everything you could accomplish in Judaism. He had been uh, uh, educated under Gamaliel. He had served as a Pharisee. He had achieved status uh, in that. And he, upon his conversion to Christ, he said, all that stuff is meaningless you know, I count it as loss, I count it as dung. It doesn't mean anything at all. And um, I think for us, too, I mean, we've got to look at our life and say what, what's, what's really important, you know, what really matters to us. I, people, it's funny, you hear people in the world talk about finding themselves. And some people will say, well, you know, uh, I kind of was wandering through life, didn't really have aim or purpose, and then I, I got this job or this career, and I kind of found myself or sometimes musicians will say that you know they're kind of going along and then they're they're amused through their music they find themselves or artists finding themselves well god's word is very clear we can't find ourselves apart from jesus um, so clinging to this life and i like this little picture here um, and by the way jackie uh, did the slides for me because i have no artistic ability and so uh, my limits of artistic ability are a white background black block lettering. So she went out and found some pictures. And 
this is a great picture. I'm not sure if this is an owl or some kind, of little, some kind of little bird, and he's clinging to that branch for dear life. And I, I just think it's a great illustration of this verse as we try to cling on to, hold on to this life. That's what we look like. It's kind of pathetic looking, you know. Uh, when we lose our life, we find our life. Jesus talked about that. Verses 40 to 42. He who received you receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. He who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of his little ones even a cup of cold water, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. And so the next discipleship killer is underestimating the effect of our actions. Number eight. Um, if you remember the account in... Uh, Matthew 19, there's a bunch of children that want to come to see Jesus, and they want to gather, excited to see him. Uh, and Jesus wants to see them, but the disciples want to push the kids away. They say, you know what, he's really, you guys shouldn't bother the teacher. He's too busy right now. Um, and so Jesus rebukes the disciples. He said, no, he said, let the kids come. Don't push them away. That accounts in Matthew 19. Um, everyone's important to, to the Lord. And I like this picture here of a guy handing a, cup of water to a homeless guy. Uh, right before Christmas, uh, we got a chance to go down to Pacific Avenue. Daniel put that together, and we got to hand out some clothes and some other supplies and just have some hot coffee out there. It was a cold night, rainy night, to some of the homeless folks on Pacific Ave. And people, it was just a great to be down there. It was a blessing to talk to these guys, to get to pray with them a little bit, uh, just to allow the Lord to use that. And people would come by and kind of wonder, what are these, you know, we had a little, little, canopy set up down there and at the tables with the clothes on it and shoes and socks and things like that. And people were wondering, you know, what are these guys doing? You know, what's it all about? And the people would ask us, we'd tell them. We're just here to, you know, help out uh, a little way those who, who uh, need something in the name of the Lord. We did it in Jesus' name. And that was a blessing. And I think it goes, um, you know, a lot of times in our life we think, you know, if I do, Lord, that's, that's such a little thing, you know, to give a you know, a cup of water to someone. That's, you know, what's that really going to do? You know, we can underestimate the value of what the Lord would uh, have us do and, what, and the results of that. And um, I think that's another discipleship killer. We place importance on things that um, are way underestimates the way God sees it. Because you don't know that cup of water that's given there. Uh, it might be an opportunity to share the gospel. It might be someone who uh, just is at the point where they say, um, Lord, if you're out there, you know, I'm looking for you. Reveal yourself to me. And you come along with that cup of water and say, here you go, in Jesus' name. Uh, it's powerful. You know, I think a lot of times, like, like I said, we can, uh, through our own vision, our own estimation, we can really underestimate what the Lord wants to do through us and, and assign and say things are, you know, insignificant, but they're really not in God's kingdom. And so um, after all this happened, um, the disciples were sent out. And they went out. We don't know how long they were out for it, but the other Gospels tell us that um, Mark tells us they were gathered together again with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had been done and taught. And you think about this. Uh, so they, they've gone out for a period of time. They've done, uh, performed miracles, cast out demons, healed the sick. They've preached the, the Gospel, the main thing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they're giving account to Jesus about what's happened. And I can imagine it was an exciting time. This is kind of like the debriefing that's going on. They came up and they were just uh, probably really pumped up to go share all that stuff. Um, 
And that's kind of like us, because at the end of life, we're going to give an account for what we do. And I know some people are saying, well, wait a second. You know, we're Christians. We don't, we're not under judgment. That's true. Uh, as far as our salvation is concerned, we're not under judgment. We've passed from death unto life through, uh, through Christ's shed blood. That's absolutely true. Um, however, there is a judgment that's talked about for Christians. If you guys flip over with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. So I can get it right here. It says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, when Paul's writing this, he's writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. You look at the context, it's to Christians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Uh, this is also known as the, the Bema Seat Judgment. Uh, the Bema Seat uh, was a, a place of rewards. Basically, it was an athletic term. And so when they would compete in any kind of athletic competition, the Bema Seat was like the medal stand afterwards that we see in the Olympics today. You know, when you go to the Olympics, you see you know, the bronze, the silver, the gold, the different tiers that they step on. Afterwards, this was kind of like the Bema Seat that they, they would be familiar with. It was to experience rewards for what they had just accomplished athletically. Um, the Bible tells us that as believers, we're going to stand before the Lord and we're going to give an account for what we did in this life. And it has nothing to do with our salvation. Our salvation is assured through Jesus Christ. We, have, we don't earn our salvation. There's not a thing we can do uh, to, to make any of that happen. It's, it's merely God's grace. But along with that, the Lord expects us to be faithful with what he's given us, uh, in, in the time, our resources, uh, the people we know, our job, and he expects us to uh, use that for his kingdom. And it says that um, in this verse, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Um, and I think about that a little bit, you know, um, what that's going to be like when I stand before the Lord and give an account. Okay, Lord, what did I do with my time, those resources, all that stuff you gave me and you blessed me with? What have I done with it? Uh, another verse that ties into this, uh, 1 Corinthians 3. And this, is a, this is an encouraging verse, 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. there's going to be rewards in heaven. And we don't, you know, we say, wait a second, everyone goes to heaven, right? You know, as, um, as Christians, we all go to heaven. That's true. If we have faith in, in the Lord, we all go to heaven uh, through Jesus' shed blood. But the Bible does talk about rewards. Look at verse 12 of uh, 1 Corinthians 3. Now, if any man built upon the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show because it is to be revealed with fire. And fire will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built upon it remains, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work is suffered, is, is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as through fire. What that verse is saying is that the Lord's going to test the quality of our work. It's going to be tested with fire. And so if you've done stuff that's uh, kind of temporal, doesn't really count. It's going to be like wood, hay, and stubble. You put a match to it, it just goes straight up. There's nothing left. If you build it with precious stones, with gold and silver, when you put a match to it, it's still going to be there. And so part of the reason for discipleship 
know, Jesus talked a lot about discipleship in, in the Gospels. We just looked at Matthew 10 this morning. Um, is because it does matter what we do as Christians. I think a lot of times we get the impression that uh, once we're saved, our, all we have to do is kind of wait around for the rapture. You know, just wait for the Lord to come back, make ourselves comfortable here. Um, you know, go to church, which we're here this morning. Here, hear some good teaching, music, worship, prayer, hang out with other Christians, and that's all great stuff. Uh, we should be doing all that. The Bible tells us we need to be doing that. But beyond that, it's, we're called to be disciples, right? Matthew, great Commission, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Don't make just hearers. Make disciples, people who are actually going to follow the Lord and, and with their whole life. And so this morning, just that's what I had to share with you guys, is I, I look at Jesus' warnings in Matthew chapter 10. I look at those eight things that are up on the board there that can potentially kill discipleship in my life, in your life. And I think it's almost like, um, like weeds in a garden. We've got to kind of look at that. And we've got to say, you know, are any of those weeds present, you know, in my life? You know, do I lack trust in the Lord to provide for me? Am I afraid of persecution? Am I too caught up in this world? Does, does money mean too much to me? And, I, and it's like, just like weeding a garden. You see that weed, you, you pull it out, and you ask the Lord to remove that from you. Because ultimately, when you stand before the Lord, um, you know, when we're going to give an account for our lives. And I want to make sure that none of those things, uh, you know, would prevent me from receiving that reward. Anyway, let's pray. Father God, um, you just, uh, you challenge us in your word um, to, to be a disciple. Lord, you, uh, you give us the example of Jesus calling the 12 disciples, of sending them out, of, of commissioning them, Lord. And they, I'm sure when you sent them out, Lord, they felt like they weren't ready, they weren't worthy. Uh, but you sent them out anyway, Lord. And you bless them as a result of that, of their obedience to you. And Father, I just pray that uh, uh, any of the things that we've looked at today in Matthew 10, if any of those things are present in our life, Lord, that you would show us through your Holy Spirit and that through the, also through the power of your Spirit you would remove those things uh, from our life as we yield to you, Lord. We desire uh, to be uh, disciples who honor you, Lord, not just with uh, words, but also, Lord, with the deeds, with the... the uh, the fullness of our life, Lord, that you've given us, Lord. We're, we're simply giving back to you as we respond to disciples. Uh, all the things you've blessed us with, Lord, uh, we want to turn around and use that to reach out to the world around us, to be doers of the word, Lord, to not just be hearers. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for this uh, passage of scripture in Matthew. Lord, just pray that uh, your spirit would speak to our hearts now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.